0: In Romans chapter fourteen. Romans chapter fourteen today, and we've been. This is now the application section of Romans. <coughs> we have talked about the deepest, highest theology uh, in all of Scripture in the first eleven chapters of Romans, but now we are talking about what you do with that how you live with that, and that is so important because the Christian life is not just understanding things. It is living things, living what you know. Um, We talked about the, to say the importance of love is is almost an understatement. It's the thing. Love is the thing that we're called to. And not in a, a sentimental, pat-your-back kind of way. But, but the self-sacrificial, self-denying kind of love is that Christ himself demonstrated in his life and his death. And gave the, us the ability to do through his resurrection and then giving us the Holy Spirit. All of that. Now now we are to, to be agents of that kind of reality. We, have to, we are to have that kind of transcendence in us and to be weighty persons of self-sacrificial, self-denying, confident, holy love for one another especially. And Paul is now addressing the church. And if there's anything that churches struggle with, it's coming together and applying that to one another. Applying that call to love. The aim of our charge is love, the Apostle Paul says. And that seems to be the thing that that in many, many churches... is difficult to come by for some reason. So let's look at Romans 14, verses 1 through 12. The Apostle Paul is now going to go on to talk about judgment in the church and how we should deal with one another when we have different opinions on secondary issues. The Apostle Paul says, As for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. (laughs) Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master... That he stands or falls. And he will be upheld. For the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another. While another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day. Observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats. Eats in honor of the Lord. Since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains. Abstains in honor of the Lord and give thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. now, I know it would, it's, gonna, it's a shock to you that Christians would disagree with one another, right? I mean, this is shocking that this would happen. No, I don't think this is a surprise to anyone that there would be disagreement in the church. But Paul is here uh, addressing specifically two groups of people. Number one, the strong. It, it, in, verse, in chapter 14 all the way through chapter seven, uh, 15, verse 7, Yes, verse 7, he's addressing the strong and the weak. Now, the strong are those who have fully embraced their freedom in Christ and applied it to aspects of holiness and other aspects of life. The weak brother or sister is the one, and we'll unpack this in a minute, but the weak brother is the one who has not, Thought through and applied all of the implications of the gospel to their spiritual life. That's the weak person. They believe in Christ, they trust in Him for salvation, but they have not yet fully applied all that Christ has done for them to their life. They're the weak brother. And they don't live as free as the strong. <clears throat> And ultimately, Paul is saying in this passage that these are disputable matters that he's bringing up. These are all not necessarily matters of salvation. They are disputable matters, and you are bound to your conscience, not another person's opinion. So Paul is essentially saying in this passage, do not allow disputable matters to undermine the unity of, Of the church. Don't draw a line that God hasn't drawn. Do we not. Do we not see this. Today. Many people drawing lines that God has not drawn. Drawing them in the sand. And that disrupts the unity. Of the church. Now I I am. If you know me. If you know me. You know that I am not saying. That there aren't essentials. There are essentials. And. That's what I'm drawing. I'm drawing a line. I draw lots of lines. I'll draw lines all over the place here, but I'm not drawing a line that Christ himself has not drawn. Mm-hmm. You with me? Yeah. All right. Let's talk about who the weak in the faith are. <clears throat> exactly. Who are the weak in faith? Verses 2 and 5 give you a clue. I'm going to pause for 15 seconds let you read that. See if you can come up come up with it yourself. Verse 2 says one person believes he may eat anything. That would be the strong, but the weak person eats only vegetables. 5 one person esteems one day as better, better than another. That would be the weak, While one person esteems all days alike. That would be the strong. Well, in verse 2, the abstaining from meat and eating only vegetables refers most plausibly to a Jewish person who has converted from Judaism to Christ. And yet... Yet, even though they've converted, and even though they would not consider themselves Jews anymore, they still are, are, um, even though they wouldn't consider themselves um, following the law of Moses. Now there's a new Moses, a new Christ. Nevertheless, they still feel the weight of Old Testament taboos on their life. They, They still feel the weight of kosher laws and in fact, they're living in Rome. They don't even know where this meat came from, how it was slaughtered, if it was sacrificed in a temple. Is this from something that parts the hoof or not? It's So rather than just eat the meat that's sold in the market, who knows what it might be, they say, we're going to eat only vegetables. So this refers to the scrupulous Jew who has converted, yet still feels these... Old Testament sensibilities. In verse 5, they esteem one day over another. They still feel like they need to observe the Sabbath. They still feel as if the festivals are are important. That new moon is something we need to keep and, and, and need to observe, just like the Old Testament says. And they wouldn't say it's a matter of salvation. But it is the way of holiness, they they would think. And their conscience is is pricked by people who don't do the same thing because they're just coming out of this unique, redemptive, historical situation. So, this refers to the Jew who has placed faith in Christ and yet they're still sensitive to the taboos of the Old Testament law. Again, they're weak, not in the sense that they, don't, they, they lack faith in Christ. They have faith in Christ. They are weak in the sense that they have not fully embraced their freedom in Christ and allowed that freedom to permeate every aspect of their spiritual life. They are free from ritualism. So this is not, those of you who are thinking, "Well, wait, those of you who know the Bible well, are going to think about Galatians and say, well, Paul's kind of saying something similar against the Galatians, but he's a lot harder on them. The difference here between here and Galatians is, in Galatians, they were Judaizers. And the Judaizers were people who said, you have to follow certain Old Testament customs and laws, including circumcision, in order to be justified. That is, declared righteous by God. So it was a faith plus law, Old Testament law. That is not what the person here. That's not what the weak brother does. It's faith. You're saved by faith alone. You're justified by faith alone. But sanctification comes through observing some of these things that come from the Old Testament law, it seems. So, this is not the way to salvation. It's the way of the saved, they would, they would think, because they haven't fully applied Christ to their life. So one commentator, Thomas Schreiner, said that their faith is genuine, but it is weak precisely because they believe that the law should be observed in terms of its ritual obligations. Such ritual observance does not nullify the authenticity of their faith, but it does indicate a certain deficiency. What is that deficiency in their faith? Again, they have not allowed Christ, their freedom in Christ, to permeate every aspect of their life. Now Jesus did say that it's not what goes into a person that defiles them, it's what? What comes out of them. And so, what Jesus is saying is, it's not a matter of ritualism to God ultimately, because the Jews during the first century had equated the ritual act with holiness to such a degree that they became indistinguishable. And that's why you have Pharisees praying in the market and, and showing people how much offering they give, and it seemed holy. To people. Meanwhile, it was hypocrisy, and Jesus is getting under that worldview and saying, God doesn't, the ritual is not what matters. Sacrifices and offerings I have not required, but a broken and contrite heart. So they're sensitive to rituals, these people. They're sensitive to former taboos. Now, I want to, so this is a person who wants to be holy. But he's sensitive to these taboos. This is a, a difficult passage to preach for me because two reasons: number one, this is a unique, redemptive historical situation. That means you don't these people were living during the time where there was no Christ, then there was a Christ who died. And the new covenant was inaugurated. They lived during that time. And so they had—they were brought up in Judaism and they had to convert to this new way of Christianity. No, None of us has gone through Christ coming down, dying an atoning death, rising and inaugurating a new covenant. We live on the latter end of that chronology. They lived in the middle of it. So this is... We don't have people converting to Judaism, converting from Judaism to Christianity during the the lifetime of the apostles. We don't have that anymore. So this is unique in redemptive history. Number two, this passage has to do with somebody who really wants to be holy. And they're really scrupulous about being holy. And I don't think that's the problem in the church today. I I just don't see this being a problem in the American church. People really, they're being too scrupulous. That's not our problem. Our problem is that we're not disciplined enough in the American church. So... I don't know, those are two reasons that this passage is difficult, because I don't want you to get the impression that holiness is exhausted by the phrase, you know, exhausted by, uh, don't try that hard or something. That's not what I'm saying. I, I am saying, though, that there are still weak people in the faith, and there are still strong people in the faith, even though the weak brother um, is not as common. In the same sense. As he is weak here. So who is the weak brother today? The weak person. Would be those. Who because of their conscience. Abstain from things. That God has not prohibited. And. Who prohibit. What God. Has allowed. You follow me? They abstain from things that God has not. Necessarily prohibited. And they. Prohibit things that God has allowed. This would be the weak brother today. Yet they still believe in Christ. So the classic example of this will be drinking alcohol or smoking. Um, These are not things that God has prohibited. Um, But many people, especially those of Baptist circles feel like drinking, this is the classic Baptist thing where you know, holiness is exhausted by not drinking. And so they really feel like drinking alcohol is a sin, and, and that's not clear in Scripture at all. But for them, they don't drink. This is, this is the weak brother, because even though I think if you do abstain from alcohol because of your conscience, that's a good thing. It's a good thing. And we'll see that next week. However, nowhere in Scripture are you told to do that. Um, in fact, it seems that Jesus drank alcohol himself. And so you're, you're free to do that. Um, nevertheless, um, some people have this conscience. Their conscience is pricked if they would drink alcohol. So what do we do with these kinds of people who feel bound by things that God has freed them to do. What do we do with these kinds of people? Well, number one, what does Paul say from the get-go? As for the weak person in faith, what do you do? Correct them. Right? No, he didn't say correct them. He says, welcome them. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome them. Why is that? Because the basis of your union is not in your opinions on these secondary issues. The basis of your union is your union with Christ. And if someone else is united with Christ, welcome, welcome that brother. Secondly, he says, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. And it seems like, a lot of Christians, maybe even well-meaning Christians, want to quarrel over opinions on things. And uh, they, use, they use their opinion on a matter of doctrine or spirituality as a sword to divide. And I have seen this. Um, I, know, I know of some people who I hope are not watching this because I don't want them to think that I'm preaching about them. But I know of some people that have chosen one or two points of doctrine that are that are secondary and they make that the thing, the thing about what what Christianity is all about or what you guys are missing. So this is, it's very important to not make Secondary issues, a sword, and divide the brethren with that. Right? Don't, don't quarrel over opinions. I heard Ray, get, said it well the other day. He said, "What um, Christians don't fight. Christians have intense fellowship." <laughs> I love that phrase. But they have so they have intense fellowship about these secondary opinions. Now, again, quarreling is not to be confused with disagreement. We can disagree. And I I will even debate you on something, as long as that doesn't become a point of contention or a reason for dividing in something. So I want to talk about theology. I, I I disagree with all of you on something, and you disagree with me on stuff. But I love talking about that. With with a brother, our sister points it, and trying to work out these things. But as long as I can shake your hand now and in the kingdom, then then I'm good to go. So, uh, disagreement would be faith seeking understanding. I'll do that all day with you guys. I want to have faith with you and seek understanding together. Be repu- reproved, rebuked. Exhorted but quarreling is opinion seeking victory that's the difference so disagreement debate faith seeking understanding quarrelling is opinion seeking victory okay let's let's do let's disagree let's have honest intellectual disagreements but let's not make the opinion the thing that we try to beat the other one with and achieve victory through that opinion i'll do that with an unbeliever but not you third paul says so don't first of all welcome him second of all do not quarrel not to quarrel over opinions not to make not to try to achieve victory with your opinion third he says do not despise the weak brother. Now, despise. The Greek means to treat with contempt. It means to look down upon, ridicule, or even mock. Because they have a different opinion than you. Now, this is an admonition to the strong. By the way, not to despise the weak brother who is more scrupulous than you. Because there is is the tendency of people who feel more free in Christ, who are more free, who sense their freedom in Christ, to ridicule and look down upon those who are more scrupulous and those who they perceive as more legalistic than them. And they, they might even mock them. And... They'll say, well, this this guy doesn't drink, he doesn't smoke, he wears a suit and tie to church. I mean, this guy, this guy's one step away from being an Old Testament Jew. I mean, you know, and so what, what happens to this person's heart is they become legalistic about not being legalistic. They, you know, they become a freedom Pharisee. They become pharisaical about their freedom in Christ. And if somebody, somebody's conscience isn't as free as theirs, they become pharisaical about it. And that, then, then the, Pharisee, the, Pharisee, the Phariseeism that they promote is a new legalism that looks free and loose. And, and if you're not doing that, then you're out. You're out. We'll divide you. We won't welcome. We'll divide because of that. And there are, there are a lot of churches that do this new legalism. You know. And, well, I won't go into it, but that, that they're all about their freedom. I and mean, they got the freedom thing down. You know. I think it's because sometimes People who are free in Christ, who feel, who have that sense of freedom in Christ, um, tend to see the more scrupulous, maybe even more disciplined person as an insult to their own piety. That they're insulted, maybe challenged, or threatened by the other person's piety, and these things ought not to be so. You should be fully convinced in your own mind, Paul says in verse 5. We'll get there in a minute. But if you are confident, Thankful, and you believe this is the way of holiness and your conscience does not prick you in the thing that you do or do not do then you have no reason to be taken aback when somebody differs from you at all you can say well that is your conscience and you're bound to it brother and I have my conscience and I'm bound to it praise God so Oh, so also too with the weak brother, this means we have to give them time to grow, right? So when Paul says welcome him into the faith, that doesn't mean take him aside and immediately, immediately challenge all of his, um, all of his presuppositions and assumptions about holiness and tell him, you know, tell him he does not. He should not be doing the thing he does to honor the Lord. So there was a woman one time that walked into a church I was going, and she had, a, um, she had a head covering on. She had a head covering on. And so the wrong thing to do would be to go up to that woman and say, you are free in Christ. You uncover your head right now. Her conscience, her conscience has told her to do this. Now, she, in fact, biblically, does not need to cover her head. I can, I'll could, go with you to 1 Corinthians 11. We can talk about that. But she does not need to do that. Nevertheless, she feels, because of conscience sake, like this is the way she needs to manifest her piety to the Lord. So it would be wrong to rip the shawl off her head, the thing off her head, and say, you are free in Christ. That's it. Paul says, welcome them, do not quarrel opi- over opinions. Now, so that's what those strong should do for the weak. Welcome them, do not quarrel opinions, and do not despise them. They're not a threat to your piety. And do not mock them. Now, what about for the weak brother? The more scrupulous person, the person who has an over-exercised Um, conscience when it comes to certain things. Paul says in verse 3, And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. (coughs) To judge somebody is to pronounce wrongdoing on that person. And Paul is saying, You, you're the weak brother. Do not pronounce wrongdoing on somebody who is free in Christ, who understands they are free in Christ, and partakes with what God has given them in thanksgiving. You are the weak brother. Do not condemn them for doing wrong. Why is that? For God himself has welcomed them. While the strong has the tendency and the danger of becoming a freedom Pharisee, the more scrupulous person has a tendency of becoming an actual Pharisee about things. About actually becoming legalistic about certain things. And this is more serious. Why is that? Because God has welcomed him. Do not draw lines, again, that God has not drawn. And if God is saying, come in, Who are you to stand at the door and push that person away? Whether formally or informally by your actions and attitudes towards that person. Judgment belongs to the Lord, amen? And he will weigh the hearts. God is the one who judges the validity of your piety to him. Can you weigh hearts? You can only see faces. And you can only see that person when you see them. And if this person is doing what they believe God has freed them up to do in faith and thanksgiving, and they take a glass of wine and they thank God for that wine that's good for stomach's sake, and they drink it with thanksgiving because it is sweet and and it, um, it is, comes from the vine that the Lord himself created. And they partake of it with joy, knowing it came from the hand of God. Who are you to judge that person? Again, again, I want to say, there are things to judge people about. So, again, do not hear me saying, That we should never be judgmental about things. You should be very judgmental about certain things. Extremely judgmental about sin, like child sex trafficking. You should be judgmental about that, right? But you should not be judgmental about something that God himself does not judge people for. I I remember I got a... Someone wanted to come to this church, but they were just astounding that we would adopt the pagan practice of celebrating Christ's birth on December 25th, on Christmas Day, a day that that was pagan from the get-go and they just can't fellowship with us or any other church in this area for that matter, because most churches celebrate Christ's birthday on December 25th. Well, let me tell you something. God cares far less about when you celebrate Christ's birth than if you are in fellowship with somebody. So this person wasn't even going to church anywhere because of this issue. That is a dividing point that God himself has not made. There was I heard a story about also too about a new church plant, like us, a church a church plant, uh maybe 25-30 people, and they decided to take a cruise together. And this would be great. I don't know where they went, but they went on the cruise together, and they were happy and joyful. But um and they were and they were doing the work of the gospel, from what I understand. They were really moving forward. And um during the cruise, some of them drank a little wine with their. With their um, meal, and some didn't. They took great offense at this. And as the week went on, this became a real point of contention, and quarreling and fighting ensued, and by the time they got off the cruise, the church had split into the drinkers and the non-drinkers, which is just <laughs> insane to me. I mean, So that is not a line that God has drawn for you. You're bound by your conscience. Your conscience does not bind the other person. Okay? So, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master, and I'm not your master, that you stand and fall. The Lord is able to make him stand, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now, again, I've been saying this a few times, but verse 5 gives us the rule. In this situation, how can you honor the Lord? Verse 5 One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. You should be fully convinced in your own mind. Not just convinced, by the way, fully convinced. In your own mind. Fully convinced. Don't just drink because other people are drinking, and you kind of it kind of wounds your conscience a little bit, and but you still do it. You should be fully convinced in your own mind. Take that and drink it to the glory of God if you're going to do it. Now, obviously, drunkenness is a sin. So do not be very, very careful, Proverbs says, when the the drink and the glass swirls around and you get dizzy. So drinking can be dangerous, but if you do it once in a while with sobriety, do it for the glory. Be fully convinced in your own mind as you do it. Each person should be convinced, but of what? Verse 6. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats it in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God while he eats it. So you should be fully convinced that what you're doing, you are doing in honor of the Lord as you give thanks for doing it. Give thanks for doing it. Do it in honor of the Lord. Drink that wine in honor of the Lord. Schreiner, in his commentary, says, What matters are not the specific behaviors practiced, but the motivation that informs the behavior. So what matters are not the specific behaviors practiced, but the motivation that informs that behavior. The Lord cares about your motivation in these issues more than the action itself. Now, if you were brought up in a culture where just some in where you were taught that wearing shoes in church is a sin. And you cannot shake that. You cannot shake that. You should not do it. You're bound by your conscience to not do it. Maybe that sounds a little radical to you, but I really believe that you're bound by your conscience. Now, as you grow, your conscience can be more informed. But if you wound your own conscience, that is not good for your soul. That bruises and breaks your conscience. And then you're able to override your god giving conscience in other situations as well. So, but don't always let your conscience be your God. Don't always let your conscience be your God. Far less your heart. Let scripture be your God, and make sure your conscience follows that. Um. So the Lord looks at the outward, he he looks at the inward rather, he looks at the motivation, he looks at the heart. So let's say there's one man, solid, reformed fellow, Presbyterian, OPC even, and he fasts and he reads the scriptures and he abstains from many silliness, many, many silliness, Many silly things in the world. And um, he comes to church in holy attire, like the Psalms say. And um, as he does those things, he does it filled with pride, with how holy he is. And he does it filled with contempt for how other people are so worldly and are so undisciplined. And then there's another man who is very busy in life and he he has a tough work schedule, wishes he could spend more time in scripture, um, humbly seeks to to walk with God. Um, Comes to church, you know, in a t-shirt, jeans, you know. Who do you think? Who do you think God accepts? It's not the first man. It is not the first man. Even though the first man looks good, it is the second man who humbly throws himself upon God's mercy, tries his best to honor the Lord in the thing that he does. (coughs) The Lord weighs the heart. So, in verse 7 through 9 now, we are given the pinnacle of the Christian life. That the Christian life is lived not unto other people's consciences. It's lived unto the Lord. 7 through 9. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's, not other people's. We have one master. and It's before him and for him that we live for his glory. For to this end Christ died and lived again that he might be the Lord both of the dead and the living. So living your life as an act of worship, giving thanks to God for things you are free to do. As an act of worship. You know why Christ died? Christ died that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, who for their sake died and rose again. 2 Corinthians five, fifteen, I think. That's why Christ died. If you're going to live for him, you're going to live for him forever. So eternal life is in there, but sanctification is front and center as well. Holiness is front and center. Do all things for the glory of God. Fold laundry to the glory of God. When you fold laundry, don't say, well, these, this family just keeps, you know, this is on my mind because I was folding laundry the other day. Nydia usually does that, but I tried to be a good husband. She's been very busy lately, so I was folding some laundry. So would I talk about how the kids throw the laundry in the laundry basket too much, no, I'm going to do this for my family, for the glory of God. Enjoy. I'm going to fold this laundry. When you work, when you wake up, you're tired. You have to go to work. Give thanks to God for the opportunity to supply for your family. May it be enjoy, and even you're even bringing thoughts captive to the Lord for Him. Don't don't despise bringing thoughts captive. Right, that can be an act of worship. Anger. Depression, sadness, frustration—take those thoughts captive and bring it to the Lord. Lord, bring it to the Lord, um, knowing that knowing that joy is a moral category in Scripture. Love, joy, peace is a fruit of the Spirit. It's something you must. Seek. All right. Um, each of us will give an account of how you live your life before God. Please hear me on this. Each of us will give an account. Jesus told many parables about this very issue. Um, whether it was the parable of the talents, you know, the, the virgins who... who Did not get the lamp, the oil in their lamp. Understand that the Lord is wanting you to live in His presence, under His authority, and for His glory, as Chapelfield's school motto says. Um, Each of us will give an account how we did that. So uh, let me just wrap this up with a few bullet points. Number one. First bullet point is um, there is a plea for unity in this passage. There is a plea for unity. Let's be unified in the church. And and I'm not... I'm talking to you. Doesn't necessarily mean I'm talking about you. But let's together be unified as a church. And as a Christian, not just as us, this church, but as Christians... Let's welcome the one whom God has welcomed. And then have honest, intellectual, robust, loving disagreement. Can we do that? Don't demonize a person who is honestly trying to glorify the Lord. You can disagree with that person, and strongly so. But do not demonize that person. I, I just want to take you to a passage that's been on my mind, James. Let's go to James, chapter three, really quick. Hopefully, this will be helpful too, because um, James chapter three, after Hebrews, or James chapter three, verse thirteen, there is a way from above and a way from a below. And what I'm telling you right now is I'm asking you to understand that the Christian life is about becoming also, it's about abiding in Christ, number one. It's about the glory of God, but it's about becoming a weighty individual. Not just because you have a solemn demeanor, but because you are confident in things. And you also cooperate with the virtues that God has told you to cooperate with. You bring yourself to walk with the Spirit. You keep in step with the Spirit, right? So this requires intentionality. So with that being said, James talks about the wisdom from above versus the wisdom below. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Now that is, that's powerful. The wisdom from below is earthly, unspiritual, and and demonic. That means there are demonic forces that you and I can give power to. Um, 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Amen? Peaceable, gentle, open to reason. I'm open to reason with you. I want to be gentle with you. Merciful and full of good fruits and impartial. So, that's what we have. We have the way from above versus the way from below. Um, I forget what bullet point I'm on, but secondly, I think, don't create those boundaries that Christ himself has not created. Please don't do that. Even theologically this happens. There is a debate in theology. You will not be- believe this debate. Not that it's... there. Are, rather than going into a diatribe, there is a debate about the impassibility of God, which is the idea that God, whether God can or cannot feel emotion, that has actually split churches and has actually led to firings in seminaries and fights and arguments. Now, it, I deny impassibility because you could not read the Bible, honestly if you believed in impassibility. But, um, at least what I think, I mean, I'm, I'm open to being corrected on that, but um, but this seems like such a fine point of doctrine to me, and it's, it's just an example of how we can pick certain things and make it a sword, and divide the brethren. So don't create boundaries that Christ himself has not created. Third, Do not undo boundaries that Christ has created. Please understand. This is specifically about, and everything I've said today, is specifically about disputable matters of piety. Not about blatant sin or essentials of the faith. Okay? Not about that. So do not undo boundaries that Christ has created. Because a lot of people will just Oh, love this passage. You'll relish it. Yeah, no judgment. We just need to get along. and that, And they'll blur boundaries. Don't blur boundaries. Contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. Lastly, all of your piety should be unto the Lord, out of a pure, confident conscience. Okay? How does your spirit-led conscience direct you not others, to honor the Lord. How does it direct you specifically? You specifically, not others, to follow the Lord. We'll pause there. Next week we'll pick up at verse uh, 13. Let's close in a word of prayer. Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only wise God, be glory and majesty and power and dominion before all time now and forevermore amen. amen amen if anyone would like special prayer i would love to pray with you god bless you